This is Barry Zelma, Zelma on insurance. I am an attorney who has retired from the active practice of law and now spend my time as an insurance claims consultant, an insurance claims expert witness, an author and producer of these videos. Today I'd like to talk about the unethical insured. Must, much is talked about about insurance companies acting in bad faith, being unethical. Almost nobody talks about the fact that some insureds also act unethically, especially when presenting a claim. On rare occasions, an insured will act unethically in his, her, or its relationship with an insurer. When they do, if discovered by the insurer or its claims persons, the right to indemnity may be lost. Consider the decision of the United States Supreme Court in Claflin v. Commonwealth Assurance Company. Although hoary with age, this case still states the law of the United States with regard to unethical and fraudulent conduct by an insured and the insured's obligation to appear for and testify honestly at an examination under oath. The decision from 1888 is still the law of the United States. The decision resulted after a man named Murphy acting as the insured, lied at an examination under oath because he was concerned others might learn of information that could hurt him with regard to his relationship to his employer and a lender. The lie was a breach of Murphy's ethical obligation to the insurer, and he was deprived of indemnity because what he did was fraud. The U.S. Supreme Court dealt with another case of failure of ethical standards in Stipsich v. Metropolitan Life, a 1927 case, where the Supreme Court, faced with a failure on the part of the insured to communicate a material change in his health condition, saw a possible breach by the insured of the covenant of good faith and fair dealing, but left to the trial court to determine the truthfulness of the answers. It did explain, however, that the ancient rule that changes in conditions material to the risk which occur between the opening of negotiations for insurance and the issuance of a policy must be divulged before first became first established in early British marine insurance policies and is still the law that must be followed today. An ethical insured who applies for fire insurance on a dwelling that burns to the ground between the time of the application and the inception of the policy, as required by the Stipsich decision, must advise the insurer of the change and allow it the opportunity to renegotiate its obligations, since the condition, contingent event it was asked to insure was no longer contingent, but was a certainty. An insured that honestly promises its insurer 
that a burglar alarm exists protecting the property that is the subject of insurance and obtains a reduced premium because of the alarm's protection of the property, must in good faith advise the insurer if the alarm was disconnected between the time the application was signed and the policy issued. The insurer and the insured are obligated to know under Stipsich that the insured has advised the insurer of the change and allow it the right to renegotiate the terms of the contract. After spending over 52 years as a claims person and insurance coverage lawyer, I found that a high percentage of people insured, over 95%, act ethically, fairly, and in good faith in the effort to obtain insurance or make a claim against their insurer. The small percentage that do not have an ethical compass and intentionally misrepresent or conceal material facts act with total disregard for ethical conduct or intentionally misrepresent or conceal material facts to obtain insurance are fraud perpetrators who give up the right to the benefits of the policy. A small example of unethical insureds and people in the business of insurance can be found in the reports from Zelma's insurance fraud letter that I publish twice a month and that tells the public about recent convictions of people who have criminally deceived their insurer. For example, Teresa Halsey Pollock pleaded guilty to felony insurance fraud, attempt to attain property by false pretenses, and conspiracy to obtain property by false pretenses. Pollock of New Hanover County, North Carolina, pleaded guilty in 2016. Pollock and her daughter rented a U-Haul van, and approximately two hours later an accident occurred in the Longleaf Park area of Wilmington. All those involved in the accident claimed not to know the others in the other vehicle. Pollock claimed bodily injury first against the insurance carrier for U-Haul and then against the insurance carrier for the other party whose vehicle she was in at the time of the crash. In both claims, she stated she did not know who was in the U-Haul van that she helped to rent several hours earlier. An investigation by the North Carolina State Department of Insurance revealed that all five women had communicated by phone in the hours before the accident. Michael Harold Krieger, 63, of Visalia, California, the owner of Michael Krieger Contracting, was sentenced in California Superior Court in Kings County after his conviction on three counts of felony insurance fraud with a white-collar crime enhancement charging for for cheating his workers' compensation insurer out of more than $5.4 million in premiums. 
after receiving a referral from Krager's workers' compensation insurer. Detectives from the California Department of Insurance launched an investigation into his business practices. The investigation included an audit of his payroll records provided to his insurer and what he provided to the Employment Development Department, which revealed that for over four years, Krager intentionally underrepresented his payroll in order to mislead the workers' compensation insurer and obtain artificially low workers' compensation insurance premiums. The Kings County District Attorney successfully prosecuted the case, leading to Krager's conviction and sentencing of 270 days or nine months in jail, five years probation, 1,500 hours of community service, and was ordered to make restitution exceeding $5.4 million. Recently, in United States of America versus Steve Allen Pritchard, the United States Court of Appeal for the Sixth Circuit in July of 2020, found that some people commit arson just to watch the world burn. Others start fires to collect insurance money. Steve Pritchard was the latter. But after playing with fire several times, Pritchard's penchant for profiting from arson took a deadly turn. Instead of damaging property, a fire started by Pritchard in June of 2011 led to the death of firefighter Charles Sparks. At issue was whether Pritchard caused Sparks' death within the meaning of the federal arson statute. And the United States Court of Appeal for the Sixth Circuit found that it did. Pritchard's appeal turned on the first principles of causation. The common law typically permits liability only when the perpetrator acts as both the but-for and the legal cause of the harm. There was no question that an arsonist started a fire to collect insurance money. A firefighter lost his life putting the fire out. The firefighter had a history of cardiac disease and passed away from a heart attack suffered during the fire. Pritchard, who started the fire, argued that he isn't responsible for the firefighter's existing heart condition. The government, on the other hand, argued that Pritchard's arson set in motion foreseeable events where a firefighter could lose his life. While proximate cause sometimes lacks a precise definition, proximate cause language generally injects a foreseeability element into a statute. Typically, proximate cause presents a narrower range of liability than an actual or direct cause. A fundamental principle of criminal law is that a person is held responsible for all consequences proximately caused by his criminal conduct. Thus, where events are foreseeable and naturally result from one's criminal conduct, the chain of legal causation is considered unbroken 
and the perpetrator is held criminally responsible for the resulting harm. It is true that Sparks suffered from a serious ailment, including diabetes and blocked arteries, and evidence showed that Sparks had not been taking his prescribed heart medication or insulin for some time. Pritchard contended that the presence of these other factors that could have been the cause of Sparks' heart attack meant that the fire could not have proximately caused Sparks' death. Even though Pritchard offered evidence of Sparks' pre-existing medical condition that led to his death, the jury, after hearing and evaluating all of the evidence presented at the trial, found an unbroken chain of causation between the fire and Sparks' heart attack. After all, the government entered evidence showing that firefighting stresses the heart, meaning the heart attacks can be caused by responding to arsons just like severe burns, and to show proximate cause, the government only needed to enter sufficient evidence that Sparks' death was a foreseeable and natural result of Pritchard's actions. Because the jury relied on evidence showing Pritchard proximately caused Sparks' death, a direct causation analysis was unnecessary. Given testimony from neutral parties and Pritchard's faulty alibi, the jury had enough evidence to convict Pritchard without relying on his prior bad acts or expert testimony, so any error in admitting that expert testimony was harmless. Pritchard came up with the idea for arson, presented it to his spouse for recruitment purposes, tried to sway her when she resisted, bragged about being a genius at arson, based insurance fraud, planned the logistics of the fire, directed the cover-up, and threatened domestic violence to ex execute the cover-up. Pritchard's conviction and sentence was affirmed. Pritchard was and is a very bad man. He set multiple fires in his criminal career. The last arson for profit proved he was no arson genius. He had an incompetent alibi, involved his spouse as his alibi and co-conspirator, threatened to kill her and her children if she refused to lie, and did it so poorly that she testified against him. He directly and proximately caused the death of a firefighter and as a result deserved the sentence he received. He should spend all 360 months of the sentence in federal prison and will have time to consider why he did not commit an insurance fraud that did not put firefighters at risk. Mr. Pritchard is the classic unethical insured. This video was adapted from my book, Ethics for the Insurance Professional 2nd Edition, and from my newsletter, Zalma's Insurance Fraud Letter, which is available free on my website for and published twice a month. If you wish to consider the book, go to 
It is a Kindle book and a paperback and available from Amazon.com and from my website, Zalma.com, by clicking on the link to the Insurance Claims Library. If you found this video useful or interesting, please refer it to your colleagues. And if you wish to know about all future videos, please feel free to subscribe to my YouTube channel and to the blog so that you can be advised of future blog posts and videos. Thank you again for your attention.